It's easy to forget how powerful Mother Nature can be until hurricane season. While extreme weather can hit anytime, anywhere, and doesn't discriminate, there is inequity in how resilient a community is able to be. And I don't mean the strength of individuals, but the tools that allow a community to rebound. And then comes trauma. Trauma as a result of natural disasters impacts black communities in ways many of us never think about. Mental health is a part of it, but trauma from natural disasters can impact other parts of the body like cardiovascular health. I'm Femi Redwood and you're listening to Beyond Black History Month. On the west bank of the Mississippi River sits a little community called Ironton. It's one of Louisiana's oldest black towns, founded by formerly enslaved people from a nearby plantation. It's home to Audrey Trufant Salvant. I've lived there all of my life, from, from birth to now. I don't know any other place other than Ironton as home. I'm uh, a fifth generation of my family, of that community. Uh, we go back as far as 1800. Through its history, the town has dealt with segregation, economic injustice, and racial disparities via infrastructure. For example, Ironton didn't have running water until the 1980s. It didn't have a sewage system either. White nearby towns had those things, but the parish leaders time and time again denied giving that infrastructure to the black community. Ironton residents relied on a water delivery truck, and if the truck didn't show, they were forced to use rainwater. Audrey lived through it all. When you go to school with the kids, you knew everybody was living a, a, a step above you. When Hurricane Katrina headed to Ironton in 2005, Audrey and her neighbors evacuated. After decades of disinvestment in the levees in the black part of town, they knew they needed to leave. The toll on a person's mental health during a situation like that cannot be underestimated. It was just a mental strain on, on everyone. When you finally was able to see pictures of your actual home and folks that, the community that you, you you knew as a child, it was terrible. And it was just tears. We couldn't believe our lives. I remember going back in with my oldest sister and her home was actually obliterated, like a bomb just dropped on it. I remember her screaming and yelling. She just couldn't believe her eyes. And everything was just rubbish. It was a pile of just splinters. One of her grandkids' toy that sat on top of the, the rubbish it just took everything out of you to believe that you could be reduced to, to nothing. You know, every, everything was gone. E everything. When a hurricane hits a community, it impacts the health of people who live there, both mentally and physically. This is something environmental epidemiologist Dr. Robbie Park studied and proved. You know, there's so much information in our day and age. That He's an incoming assistant professor at Columbia University. He's researched the long-term effects on mortality following tropical cyclones. For clarity, tropical cyclones include hurricanes and other tropical storms. When a hurricane or other tropical cyclone arrives at a place in the United States or anywhere in the world, there will be 
indirect and direct effects. The study looked at six large categories of death following a tropical cyclone. The study's co-author, Dr. Marianthi Anna Kumorzugalu, explains: Cancers, cardiovascular respiratory injuries, infectious and parasitic diseases and neuropsychiatric outcomes. Okay, follow me, because this might get a little confusing. The research team collected over 33 million U.S. death records between 1988 and 2018. Next, they calculated how death rates changed after tropical cyclones. Lastly, they compared that data with equivalent periods in other years. Here's what they found. Tropical cyclones during that period were associated with higher death rates in the months following the storms. We found increases in respiratory diseases, cardiovascular diseases, infectious and parasitic diseases, and neuropsychiatric conditions. And I think those are the ones which also speak to the hidden burden of climate-related exposures on public health. I want that to sink in. So people died during the storms. We know this. Maybe they got caught in flooded waters. Maybe they had a medical emergency and couldn't get help in time. But the research found that these storms also have an impact on long-term health. First, let's look at how it affects physical health. Hospitalizations may go up or down after a tropical cyclone. But those ones that go down are usually electives or appointments that people are missing that they had previously booked. Missing an elective appointment can have an impact on health down the line. Because that may mean that someone may miss a screening or a particular preventative appointment. These routine appointments are seriously important. Look at what happened during COVID. Preventative cancer screenings dropped 94% during the first four months of the pandemic. Researchers predict the next decade will see 10,000 preventable deaths as a result. It's a a sort of ticking time bomb, if you like. Next is the mental health impacts. So neuropsychiatric disorders is an umbrella term that includes conditions like Alzheimer's, epilepsy, and Parkinson's, along with mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Neuropsychiatric disorders are one of the categories associated with increased death rates following a hurricane. We really are seeing long-term mental health impacts of hurricanes in particular. That's Rebecca Schwartz, a clinical research psychologist who spent her career investigating how traumatic events are related to mental health outcomes. She's looked at standalone events like 9-11, long-term situations like the pandemic, and also natural disasters like hurricanes. Rebecca also researched how people fared mentally in the years following Hurricane Sandy. What we found across the board after different hurricanes and in different populations, the more negative experiences one had as a result of the hurricanes, if they had damage to their home, lost a loved one, lost a job, things along those lines, the more consistently they were likely to have elevated symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So in one of our studies, we looked at people, we got surveys from them about one year after the hurricane and then again a year later. What we found was post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms persisted among those who had more negative experiences during the hurricane, even a few years later. Audrey can attest to this. It does a lot to your psyche. As I keep telling everybody, as I tell my stories, I feel, and I know for a fact, with the Arrington situation, because we never ever received any type of mental health services, we're still walking around like zombies. As humans, you just cannot experience 
and see the traumatic situations that we experience to come back and, and have a tune upright at your back step, to have coffins floating around the community. The, those remains in those coffins is some folks that you knew that you had a lot of respect for. Even though Audrey was separated from her home for so long and wanted to go back, it was hard to return right off the bat. My home was one of the homes that was spared because my home was elevated, but I could not take the mental stress that was in within was in the community. I could not go back there to come home, to come out my door every day and just to see a coffin upright, but no one seemed to care. You're just left to defend and, and just figure it out. You know, that that's almost what the government was telling you, the local government, the federal government, for the little service and assistance that we received, it was more or less the, the bottom line was, you folks just go and figure it out. There's a common misconception that PTSD is something that only happens to first responders. That's just not true. It can happen to anyone significantly impacted by a traumatic event. We saw it even in children, children who really couldn't sleep at night, who were having nightmares. Anytime it rained, they were having a lot of anxiety and panic. So having to be displaced from your home, having to evacuate was significantly associated with increased depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, stress. Those who end up at shelters, as opposed to evacuating to a friend or family member's place, were at a greater risk for PTSD. It's not even just about the displacement or the evacuation itself. It's about to. It's about where they end up um, and having you know, resources such as friends, family, a second home, which is, you know, a rarity, that makes a huge difference. Remember earlier when the Columbia researchers mentioned hurricanes causing people to miss doctor's appointments. Hurricanes can also cut off access to medical prescriptions. Pharmacies shut down, medications get lost. All of this can lead to major consequences. Believe it or not, we found that having that disruption in access to care, to physical health care, actually was associated with poorer mental health. So just the stress of not being able to access your primary care physician or your medications was associated with also an increase in mental health difficulties. 2005, Ironton dealt with Katrina. 2012, Hurricane Isaac. 2021, Hurricane Ida. Families now deal with a wave of anxiety whenever there's an incoming storm. First comment among friends is, oh my God, please don't let it come our way. Because we know we're not prepared. There's no levee protection. Federal agencies use what's called a Social Vulnerability Index. This helps determine the areas that are less resilient to a storm. And when I say resilient, I don't mean that people are not strong and won't bounce back, but resilient as in what resources are available to help a community quickly recover. Are the resources outdated and are the resources enough? Social vulnerability is measured by four major themes. First is socioeconomic status. Second is household composition, as in are there elders, single parents, disabled people, etc. Third includes race and ethnicity. 
Last is housing and transportation access. Communities that are considered socially vulnerable are often disproportionately impacted by these storms. The areas that were lower resourced were the lower lying areas that were more impacted by the disaster itself. They're more likely to experience flooding, property damage, and they're more likely to have fewer resources. I think that the idea of resilience both before, during and after a tropical cyclone is very much entwined with the idea of how resilient a community is by virtue of its infrastructure, by virtue of the way that the houses are built, but also by virtue of the baseline health of that community. And all of those, it cannot be denied, is intimately linked to uh, racism. I think everything that I would think of with regards to um, the connections... Nambi Nduga is a policy analyst at Kaiser Family Foundation's Racial Equity and Health Policy Program. She says the historic and structural inequalities that influence health equity are the same ones that influence communities of color vulnerabilities to climate change. People of color are more likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to live in places that are more exposed to environmental hazards and have less access to resources that would support them in times of climate crises. This was apparent in post-Katrina surveys. Black people were almost twice as likely to be living in areas that had more than two feet of flooding compared to their white counterparts. They were also more likely to report that their lives were somewhat very disrupted um, by the storm compared to their white counterparts. Research also found Black people are more likely to have a limited ability to both prepare and recover from extreme climate events. Folks who have lower socioeconomic status are less likely to have flood insurance and other hazard mitigation strategies preparing them for these climate crises and climate disasters. Black people are more likely to be exposed to environmental hazards due to where they live. Due to redlining and other policies, they're more likely to live in areas that are closer to Superfund sites or industrial waste sites or live in areas that have less shading and expose them to extreme heat. For people who do live near these industrial waste sites, there's more likely to be industrial runoff, agricultural runoff, which will impact these communities. Today, Ironton still cannot get what's needed. The constant comment that you heard from parish officials was, we don't have the funds. Audrey thinks part of the problem is where the town sits along the Mississippi River. It's a possession that a lot of industry would like to, to have. Previous presidents had referred to it as a an industrial corridor, even with a residential sitting in the midst of it. So they need us out of the way. And I think that's that has a lot of bearing on the services that we get. Ironton residents have received buyout offers in the past. For the most part, 97% of folks is saying they're not going anywhere. You may be thinking, okay, this is an area that's vulnerable to storms. They've already dealt with so much destruction. Wouldn't they want to just take the cash and leave it all behind? But there's more to it than that. My mother is in, in the cemetery there. My father's in a cemetery. All of my family is, is in a family cemetery there. There's no amount of money anybody can offer me to abandon and leave. I would just feel disrespectful to my ancestors to abandon them in that way. and abandon the place those ancestors literally built. There are things we can do to lessen the impact of these storms. 
like rethinking how we plan for natural disasters. Help hospitals potentially prepare. Do I expect injuries the first week after the hurricane? Do I expect neuropsychiatric outcomes to peak three months afterwards? In the past, efforts have focused on immediate evacuations than getting people home. But experts say communities need to be built to better survive these events, like making electric grids more resilient. And it also goes something like internet connection and broadband and connectivity. And that has implications not just for your physical well-being and health, but also your mental well-being and health. And we need to make sure post-storm resources are long-term. Very quickly, those resources are are gone, and unfortunately, communities are still grappling with the aftermath for years. And without mental health supports in place in particular, those mental health symptoms are, are going to persist. These resources don't need to be complex. When it comes to mental health, sometimes people just need that extra push to get help. Sometimes the hardest part is honestly just making that appointment and that first step in the door. Tackling these socioeconomic inequalities is key to making areas more resilient to storms. Some cities are even drafting policies and creating government positions in response to climate change. But these small communities need help. I invited the Corps of Engineers in, and they're telling us that the levees are being in the process of being built, but it's going to be 2026 mm-hmm. before, you know, that's four years off. So what do we do in the meantime? Ian could have could have very well came our way also. You know, there's still no levee protection. So we're, we're always in limbo. As hurricane season comes to an end, for Audrey and others in similar positions, they hope the way hurricanes are addressed is improved, along with the focus of physical and mental health afterwards. The hope that I would have with with anything going, it would be to just to see everybody as equal. To see everyone as equal if your neighbor was impacted or negatively impacted, you know, just seek help, try and reach out to them and treat them as humans, firstly, and then bring help. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying Beyond Black History Month, please rate and review our podcast. Beyond Black History Month is a special production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to producer Dempsey Pilot, producer Jill Webb, who wrote this episode, and Andy Egan Thorpe, our audio engineer. And I'm Femi Redwood, your host and managing producer of podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.